Good evening. Our scripture reading this evening comes from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 5 through 9. If you want to take a second and turn there. 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 5 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. My name is Thomas Nelson. I'm the young adult pastor here at Christ Covenant. Thank you uh, for our worship, our scripture reading, our hosting. <clears throat> we are starting a, a, a new series for three weeks, and we're going to go back to the book of Matthew for a little bit. And this series is the You Asked For It series. And so you sent in questions, and you continue to send in questions. Uh, and there are a little over a hundred questions, and we're going to try to just answer as many of those as we can. Now, this is really different than what we normally do. We normally don't do like topical Tuesday nights, um, and I don't mind topics as long as they're handled well and the Word of God is divided rightly and they're covered. Um, but I thought, you know what? It's this is helpful. It's helpful for me as your pastor to know, like, okay, what is going on in the minds of young adults? Like, what's what are they thinking? And, uh, and it's helpful for you to hear questions that other people are asking. It's helpful for the group leaders. It's helpful um, for you if you're coming in to think, oh, okay, good, somebody else asked that question. If you've been here a long time and you asked a question and somebody else is also like, oh man, that's so great that they asked that. I've been wanting to know. So I've divided them up uh, into three sections for tonight. The way, this is the way it's gonna work the next two weeks after this. I'm gonna hit as many questions as I can. I'm just gonna like run through them, and, uh, and I appreciate it. Thank you. you. You only sent the deep end questions, and so, um, so occasionally I may take a deep breath and then start the next one uh, with a couple of ones that are in there for levity, and I appreciated those too. Uh, and then we're going to end on a final section each week, and that section is going to have a little bit more of kind of a sermon in it. Like, it's going to be more, more sermony. Um, not like 30 or 40 minute sermon, but it's going to be, we're not going to, we're going to just stop and camp on that idea because I'm going to take a bunch of the same types of questions and combine them. So I'm going to try to teach the Bible. I'm going to try to respect your questions. I'm going to try to have a little humor. I'm going to try to be clear when the answer has my opinion in it. I'm going to try to not create legalisms. Uh, and I'm going to, uh, to try to remember that you're applying this to your roommates, your family, and your jobs uh, primarily. And I want us to know that the goal in all of this is for us to know the Lord, be known by the Lord, and walk closer with him. And every once in a while, you will hear a non-answer. 
You will want a no, you will want a yes, you will want a do, you will want a don't do, and you will get a non-answer. And it is not because I am afraid to give you an answer, it is because you've asked a wisdom question. And that's the beauty of walking with the Lord. Much of life is dealing with wisdom. And you have to know what is the Lord leading you and how is he leading you. So let me pray for us and we'll roll. Father, I thank you so much for the passage that Bethany read, Lord, the 2 Corinthians 13 passage that we're going to end our night on. And Lord, I thank you that you call us to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. And right now, Lord, would your Holy Spirit, would you search us and know us? Lord, would you, would you put your divine finger on anything in our lives that is creating harm, that is keeping us from where you want us to be? And Lord, would you speak through your word tonight as we go back to it continually? We lift all this up, Lord. We ask that you would move, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, without further ado, chapter one, dating, marriage, relationships, and God's design. Easy material. Question one, can a person date a Catholic if they truly believe they are saved? Not if you live in Ireland. Um, and so I'm, my, my guess is we're talking about, I had to guess on some of your questions. I'm guessing you're talking about a Protestant and a Christian, can they date? That's where I'm guessing. So that's how I answered this. So if I guessed wrong, <laughs> next year. Um, so here's the idea. I'm, I'm gonna read from my notes a bunch. I normally don't like to do that, but I have so much material. I wanna get through it and I wanna make sure I tell you what I wanted to tell you. Um, don't worry, there's only 18 single space pages of these notes. Uh, okay, there is, so you gotta ask like, what is a Roman Catholic? What is a Protestant? Uh, the, there, there's this idea of apostolic succession in the Roman Catholic Church and the apostolic succession is where we get this, this term papal authority. And so what happens is in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, Simon Peter, or Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so what happened is, uh, folks said that papal authority comes out of apost apostolic succession. So descendants of Peter, the rock on whom the church was built, is, are going to be in charge of the church. And so that's how you get papal authority. And that is the biggest difference between a Protestant and a Catholic. A Catholic, a true Catholic would say that there's papal authority over me that supersedes the authority of the scriptures. The Protestants, do you understand where that word came from? That word Protestant, it came from protests. And so in the 1500s, when the Reformation happened, people protested against the Church of Rome. They got named the Protestants, and many of you are that. You're the protesters. And so the, the protesters, the Protestants from the 1500s, said that they didn't believe that. They said that they believed, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. They came up with this idea called solo scriptura and scripture alone. And so they came up with the idea that, hey, we are led by scripture alone, not by papal authority. And it became this big division. 
And so that's the biggest two differences between a Protestant and a Roman Catholic would be papal authority or scriptural authority. And so as, as this came about, uh, and the Protestants believed that all scriptures breathed out by God, the divide became further and further. Uh, they also believed that, uh, you know, they, they started to go with the idea that scripture's inerrant and that the Holy Spirit could teach me, this is the Protestants, so I don't need the church or the Pope or the priest or the bishops to tell me what the scripture said. I can read it and they could start to read it. And so last, solo scriptura means that only scripture is sufficient. I'm not paying to the attention to the slides, so Shay, if you've already put that up, just leave it up. It's great. Um, Sola Scriptura means that only Scripture is our sufficient authority. Not only does Paul say all Scriptures God breathed, but on that basis, Scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Or as the Belic, the Belgic Confession says so well, listen to this, this is a good line. We believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God and whatever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. So, can you date a Catholic who is saved? I think you can. I think a Protestant and a Catholic can date. However, I believe a devout Catholic and a devout Protestant are going to differ on so many practical issues of the faith. I think you're going to find some real clashes, not just dating, but I think you're going to find clashes if you get married and what church do you raise your kids in. There's more to being equally yoked and unequally yoked than are you a Christian or are you not. You need to have agreement on some of the major tenets of the faith. You can agree on secondary issues, but the major tenets of the faith, I think to truly be equally yoked, you need to have those things in line. I think one more question to ask, since I'm speaking primarily to a Protestant group, is how Catholic is the person? There are many Catholics who don't really believe in papal authority. They don't really want the Pope to tell them what to do. They want to have autonomy. And so I think that's another question to ask. Okay, next question. All right. <clears throat> Are you allowed to have more than one wife? <laughs> no. Okay. You know the curse of polygamy, right? Multiple mother-in-laws. Uh, you know how you can tell it's a dad joke? When it becomes a parent. All right, there we go. Okay, all right. Uh, okay, sorry, I had to throw that in. I've been holding on to that one for two weeks. I was like, I got to get that out. <clears throat> okay, but there is polygamy in the Bible, and God didn't seem to stop it. And so Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, they all had multiple wives, and yet God never, never stopped it. So, like, why is it now that Will Carlisle can't have Jenna and some other person. I'll tell you why, Will. <laughs> Jenna would kill you. All right. <laughs> and so, um, and who's going to be better than Jenna? You know, I mean, come on. Uh, and so 
Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17. This is before the kings. This is before the Davids and the Solomons. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17 says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and you dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. If you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. There's this idea in the Bible. This is what's good about these questions. You get to kind of dig into other things. There's this idea in the Bible called progressive revelation. It just means that when God showed up on day one, as we see him to Adam and Eve, we see a much fuller picture by the time we get to Jesus of who the Lord is and what is his purpose. And so I think what we see in the Bible is this progressive revelation of the design, the plan, the goal that God had for men and women, for humanity. Uh, and we, we see it really, really fleshed out after the resurrection of Christ when we get the epistles that Paul wrote. However, just because something's not spelled out super clear early on doesn't mean it's not there. And this is why I think it's really important for you to not just read your Bible a bunch, but to read a bunch of your Bible. It's very, very important. When you go to Genesis chapter two, when was the last time you read the book of Genesis? Like, it is so rich. And you see so much of the foreshadowing and the promises of God laid out throughout the book. This Sunday, Jason's going to preach from Genesis. He's going to preach from chapter 41. But in Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man, listen to this, a man shall leave his father and mother, a man, singular, and hold fast to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. So yes, the people had multiple wives, but it's because they embraced the culture more than the God who had created the people in that culture. When you see people embracing multiple wives, they have walked away from the original command God gave them all the way back in the second chapter of the book. By the time you get to the New Testament, it becomes clear again. There's this call back, in a sense, back to the garden, the way it was supposed to be. 1 Timothy 3.2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. 1 Timothy 3.12, Let deacons be the husband of one wife. So, no, a man should not uh, have, so no, a man should only have one wife and a wife only one husband. But maybe there's a better question. Maybe, maybe why is the better question? Because there's only one church and one Jesus Christ. And what this picture of marriage is, it is the pursuit of Jesus after his people. And yes, you could say, well, there's many people, so isn't that kind of like he has many wives? There's many people, but they make up one bride, one church. What we have between husband and wife is a picture of Jesus Christ and his church, his bride. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32 says, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two will become one flesh. He's clearly talking about marriage there. But verse 32, Paul has wisdom from the Holy Spirit. This mystery is profound. And I say 
that it refers to Christ and the church. Jesus doesn't have a few different churches he's flirting around with. No, he just has one. And he's fiercely loyal and in love with his bride. Question three, can a woman make the first move? I said, go for it. Um, This is one of the wisdom answers. It's both biblical, but sparse biblically, and what I think is wise. So proceed with caution and conviction. I would say, yes, ladies, you can make the first move. I think it's a great question. Um, I think you can let him know you're interested, but I would say, don't lose your self-respect. You don't want to be too interested. Okay, this is, again, this is me speaking. This is just wisdom, what I think is wisdom. Um, I've been out of the game for a while, and so has Heather. Uh, But... This Saturday, 22 years. 22. No, Friday. It's Friday. I keep thinking it's Saturday. It's the 4th. I do know the day. It's the 4th. This Friday, 22 years. Can we strike that from the recording? Can we strike that? Um, I do know the the day. Uh, Ruth is a good example. Ruth 3, 1 through 5 says this. Then Naomi let her mother-in-law, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? Fellas, this is how ladies talk. May you be a Boaz. Um, Not a dumb, just kidding. Um, I heard, uh, that's anyway, if you didn't get that, that's probably good. Um, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known until the man has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you have said, I will do. This is one of the very few instances in the Bible where you see a woman taking the initiative. I'll go back to a Lou Giglio line from before Heather and I met. He was teaching on dating. This whole series was on like tape, on like cassettes. I think Heather still has them somewhere in her like parents' house. But anyway, he, uh, he said, men were asleep when woman was made and men have been asleep ever since. And I think that is absolutely true. So sometimes, ladies, we need a little bit of help. But here's what I would say. I would say Ruth modeled the following. She observed his character. She observed his kindness. She conferred with a trusted lady. In your case, it may be some trusted friends. Then she made her move. She didn't compromise. And she was ready to walk if he wouldn't pursue her. Okay, chapter 2. Doctrines, ordinances, humanity, afterlife, and medicine. So simple. Is baptism necessary to go to heaven? No. The International Church of Christ, um, under a bunch of different names, uh, the Church of Christ, uh, there's, there's a bunch of others that are, um, I would call them cults. They, uh, they, they do not, I don't, I, like, I, I think that's, I think literally cult. Jesus plus anything else is no longer Christianity. So it's a cult. Um, and so if you add baptism to it, you've gone extra biblical. You've probably taken some verses like Acts 2.38 or Mark 16.16, 16, um, where you see the idea of baptism uh, but the, and, and, and salvation associated together. But when you see the whole counsel of Scripture, what you see is that salvation is through grace alone. 
Mark 16, 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so that's really important to, to see. If you believe and baptized, then you're saved, but the non-saved person did not believe. And so belief, faith, saving faith, faith that saves you, you trust in Jesus alone, that's what it does. Okay, next question. What is the importance of the sacraments? How did we decide it's baptism and the Lord's Supper? I like that question. It's a little bit like a few of us got together. We were like, let's decide it. Um, It was decided a long time ago. But I do need to clarify a couple of words. Sacrament and ordinance are two different things. And this is important. Um, A little church lingo for you. I think this is good for all of us to know. A sacrament is actually something that is a means, viewed as a means of grace. I must be baptized to be saved. Baptism has just become a sacrament. It is a means of grace. It is a means to receive the forgiveness of the Lord. An ordinance is a demonstration of faith. So now let me make it more confusing. Sometimes we mix those words up. And so you have to observe what does that church, if you're a member of Christ's covenant here, if you come here, you'll see maybe every once in a while we throw those two words back and forth. We're like, we're going to do the sacraments. We're going to do the ordinances. Uh, We may toss the words around. If so, we just made a mistake. But what you're looking for is what do they mean by that? Is it a means of grace or is it a display, a demonstration of that person's faith? Sacramentalism is the view that The means of salvation is transmitted and received through the sacraments of the church. This is not like a Protestant versus Catholic deal, but some of these questions do go Protestant and Catholic. So for instance, in Catholicism, there are seven sacraments, seven things you must do in order to be saved. Uh, There's baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony, if you get married, um, versus living together with someone. However, in the Protestant church, there is baptism in the Lord's Supper. And the reason is because they were the two physical acts that Jesus commanded his followers to do. And so I'll read you the verses where they come from. Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19, he took bread when he had given thanks. He broke it, he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, uh, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see that? Do this in remembrance of me. That's important. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the covenant in my blood the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus there, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, says, do this in remembrance of me. Don't do this to, to like get me. This doesn't save you. This is not a, a means of, of grace where you're like now it's been righteousness has been imparted to you. This is a demonstration of my faith. And then in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So that's the second one. That would be the second thing that Jesus commanded that we do in order to demonstrate our faith. And so that's how they were decided. Okay, question six. What is the biblical position on homosexuality? Y'all did not go easy on me. Now, here's the deal. I'm happy to answer this question. Um, And not, not for shock value or for whatever else. 
I'm happy to answer this question. I'm gonna answer this question. I hope when, when we get questions like this, it's like genuinely what is it and not like, oh, well, Thomas will say it. He's not afraid to say it. Because that's like frustrating. Because it's not charitable. If that's, the, if that's the goal, like, oh, get, get that person to say it because at our church they say it. Do you, like, do you hear the heart in that? That's mean. It's, it's not the spirit of Christ. Spirit of Christ is we speak the truth and we speak the truth in love. And so that's how I want to answer this question. It's, it's confusing in 2023 to even answer the question because, like, I think I would be considered a cisgender, straight, monogamous man. And 10 years ago, that was like, people would have been like, what are you talking about? And so we've made this even more complex than it is. Uh, and I think that this question is actually related to the can a man have more than one wife question from just a few minutes ago. You see, let's go back to the beginning to Genesis. We see that God is diverse. He's revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet he's unified as one. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And we are made in God's image. We are the imago Dei of God. Genesis 26, 1 through 8. Then God said, the God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, uh, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this diverse yet unified God made diversity, a man and a woman, to be unified. And so there's a picture in the Bible, all through the Bible, that God's order is a man and a woman coming together, diversity, diversity, unity, in order that out of that, the image of God might be reflected fully. So what we see in a man is part of the image of God. And what we see in a woman is the other part of the image of God. And so... Any bending of this no longer reflects God's image on us, but tries to reflect instead an image we want on him. The Bible is consistent in both the New Testament and the Old Testament that homosexuality and all sexual things outside of marriage between a man and a woman are sin. Genesis 19, 1 through 13, Leviticus 18, 22, 20, 13, Romans 1, 26 through 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 1 Timothy 1, 2, Hebrews 13, 4, Jude 1, 7. But again, the reason God did this was not to make someone suffer who is burning with a desire to be with someone of the same sex or to be a different sex than they are, uh, he's not doing that because we all have desires that are contrary to God's order. We all have those desires. Some of them just aren't sexual. 
they are desires that when carried out actually take us further from God, thus closer, thus further from joy and peace and not closer. And isn't that what everybody's after? Everybody is after comfort and peace. And we've been tricked, especially in Western society, that if you pursue different types of sexualities, you'll find that joy and that peace. But the Bible teaches the narrative that that's not how God designed it. And therefore, when you step away from God's design, you're actually stepping into self-harm. I love Galatians 5, 18 through 24. I don't think I have that on a slide. I don't think I do. So if you have it in your Bible, you're welcome. I would love for you to look at it. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But Galatians 5, 18 through 24 says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but listen to the fruit of the Spirit. Because this is what happens when we submit to the yoke of Jesus, which is good and light even if it's contrary to desires that we have. And by the way, the yoke of Jesus is always contrary to desires that we have. This is what happens when we become a follower of Jesus and dwelled with the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I could could talk about this for a long time because my heart breaks for folks in sexual trappings, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, any of the blends of all the things, because what you really want is joy and peace, and what you find is actually misery. And there's great joy and peace once the flesh is crucified, Christ has followed, the Spirit indwells you. Okay, let's move on. Number seven, how can I best share the love of Jesus Christ and his truth with someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction? How do I care for them well as their friend and also fellow human being, still created in the image of our incredible God despite their sexual brokenness, no different than I in my own broken areas of life? I want to give you like a prize, whoever wrote that question. It was so well-written. It was so charitable. Such a great question. My encouragement would be, be kind. Do you realize Heather and I were at the airport? This is like not in the script. This is not in the 18 pages. Heather and I were at the airport a few weeks ago. We were about to go on vacation and we got there early, which we'd never do. We didn't have to run to anything, which we never do. And our flight was delayed, which it sometimes is. And, uh, and so we were sitting at, at the e-concourse. You know, it used to be the old international concourse. It has the best food court. Um, and so we were sitting at the e-concourse and the piano person was playing and we were just having a great time and we were watching people. And I was thinking, people are so strange looking. Um, And Heather looked at me about the time I was thinking that, and she said, they are made in the image of God. I did not say out loud how strange I thought people looked. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Okay. And I was like, yeah, they are. (laughs) But as I saw all these people, I mean, pale, 
dark, short, tall, round, not round, like all the people. I was just amazed at all the different folks that were around. I was like, people are so fascinating, so diverse, so interesting. And she's right. Every one of those people that walked by, whether they had a degree from a seminary or didn't know a lick about Jesus, were all made in the image of God. And so who am I to be anything but kind and charitable and loving? And if someone has let you into their life and you know a, what the Bible calls sin, if you know a sin in their life, especially if they're not a Christian, you're not trying to ungay someone. You're trying to help somebody know Jesus. That's always first. And so you want that person to know that you love them. You want them to know the truth. You want to be able to articulate the truth. If they say, is my lifestyle sinful? You want to be able to say, well, it doesn't line up with the Bible. And so, yes, it is sinful, but let's talk about that. You want to be able to have those conversations. And that's built off of you earning the right to be heard. Ephesians 4.15 says to speak the truth. And you know, the truth is the gospel in love. And your hope and your prayer is for someone to know the amazing love of Jesus, the Holy Spirit to take over their life, for them to crucify the flesh and to have the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithful, generous, self-control that is found in the Spirit. Okay, next easy question. How should Christians view IVF and other reproductive technologies? Perfect. Um, here, I'm going to answer this one a little bit more briefly. The mandate for humans is um, the, the mandate for humans made in the image of God is to marry, be fruitful, and multiply. Genesis 1:28. Life takes place before a child is born. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Um, Genesis 25, 23 through 24. Um, both of those passages illustrate that life takes place before someone is born. Um, Job 3:10. Job says that. So. Medicine is good in a lot of cases, and it helps us reverse the curse. Curse brings death back from Genesis, and God has given us medicine and science, and oftentimes we can help reverse some of the curse, some of the, the things that happen with the human body, um, and, it, and it brings healing, which is what the Lord does. IVF helps a couple who can't get pregnant. However, often many times many eggs are fertilized and so life has begun and then they're frozen and then oftentimes those eggs are left there that are, that are, um, that are inseminated and they're sitting there and there's, there's life that is neglected. That is sinful. That is not honoring life. And so um, I, I think that that would not be uh, that would not be pleasing to the Lord, that disregard for life. Um, there are different ways to get pregnant with IVF. There are IVF adoption agencies now. You can adopt an egg that has been uh, fertilized. You can, you can take that. You can adopt it. You can conceive with that. There are Christian IVF groups that also will say, we're only going to fertilize as many eggs as you will viably have. So like if you want to have two kids, we'll fertilize two. If you want to have three, we'll fertilize three. And if it doesn't work, you start over. All these things are expensive, um, and, but they can be okay. Uh, however, I will just say this. Many Christians who wrestle with this become more concerned about having a baby than they do anything else in life, including God, and that is idolatry. God's timing is perfect. 
You look at Hannah, you look at Sarah, you look at Elizabeth, you look at Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, where it says in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son. Christians are to bring life. They are to be fruitful and multiply. It can be done in a variety of ways beyond having kids. There's evangelism, discipleship, spiritual motherhood, and fatherhoods. Christians don't have to have kids to be fully effective and complete. Uh, Think about, they don't have to get married to be effective and complete. Um, think about like our founder, you know, Jesus um, and Paul, like they did fine. Uh, so here's my conclusion. IVF, I would say, is permissible, but is it wise? That's, this is a wisdom question. Okay, question number nine. What do I wear to a summer garden party? Pre or post Labor Day, are we sure this is summer? All right, I would say lighter, ski, lighter colored skin. You're gonna, you're gonna go, you're gonna try some blues, darker skin. I would say some soft whites, charcoal grays, light blues, light pinks. And the question number 10. When we die, assuming we are in Christ, do we immediately go to heaven? And, uh, and then the verse was given, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. Uh, John 6, in the NIV, Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise, Luke 23, 43. Uh, so one says he'll raise us up on the last day. The other one, he'll be, uh, he'll be with me today in paradise. Um, this one stresses some people out. So I'm gonna leave you hanging a little bit. Uh, soul sleep, that's, that's not charitable. And I've been saying charitable the whole time. I have to be nice now. Um, soul sleep or conditional immortality uh, is the idea. The idea is you die and you don't know it. You just like snoozing. And then the Lord's like, hey. And like all the people that are dead that know the Lord are like, ah. And like, boop, you're up and you're good to go. The other one is you die and you stand before the Lord immediately. Now, if you like a crowd, you're going soul sleep. Like all of you go together and you stand before the Lord. If you're like, a, if you're like kind of an introvert, you're like, let's just get this over with. Um, <clears throat> So soul sleep is actually not in the Bible. Hebrews 9.27 says, and just as it appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 says, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.23 says, I'm hard pressed between my two desires. I desire to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. So what we see in the progressive revelation of scripture is once you die, you stand before God in judgment. And we see it multiple times in the scripture. What you see occasionally, especially in 1 Thessalonians chapter four at the end of the chapter is that Paul says that all who are asleep in Christ when the trumpet blows will rise to meet the Lord in the air. That's a bodily resurrection. So there's two things that happen if you're in Christ. You die, you stand before the Lord in judgment, and, uh, and then you walk through the gates if you're in Christ. I don't know if there's gates, but you walk through them. Let's just go with that. Um, it stood the test of time, uh, in cartoons at least. And so you walk through the gates, um, and then one day, and you're in spirit form, in one day your body will join you, uh, and that is at the second coming of Christ. So 
the, the eschatology here is the second coming of Christ and the bodily resurrection. The hermeneutics here are the context and the wording. If you get those two mixed up, you get a misunderstanding. Uh, the next life is complicated. I will say that. Things beyond are complicated. However, we have great comfort in verses like Revelation 21.5 where you're told he is making all things new. Okay, can we talk about intentionality versus exclusively? Intentionally versus, I've been reading that wrong for several days. Intentionally versus exclusively, how to balance being intentional with people without others feeling excluded. And I said, I wrote in here, I don't understand the question. And Kate went back and forth and looked at my answers and she said, I think I understand the question. So then we went back and forth and we answered it. Here's, here's, here's what I think. Um, I think it's okay for you to have some close friends that get you if you're a Christian uh, and love you and challenge you and accept you, but I also think you need to have folks that you're reaching out to and you're loving on and you're hanging out with. That's why I think it's bad when Christians do stuff with other Christians six nights a week. I think, I think you got tricked. And it feels good, but you're actually becoming ineffective. Um, so... I, I think um, what, what needs to happen is that you need to be intentional at times. At, you need to have rhythms of intentionality. I'm going to meet new people. I'm going to share Christ with folks. I'm going to love on them. I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to be intentional. But I also need some exclusive time with some people that fuel me and fill me and know me. Life is such a balance so many times, and I think you need both of those. Okay, how do we determine what things in the Bible were cultural, like head coverings, and what is meant to carry into our Christian walk in this day and age? What do you say to people who place teaching against, who, who place teaching against homosexuality into this category? Um, I'm going to skip that question. Okay, uh, question 13 is also right there with it. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, about women teaching and being saved through childbearing. Um, I'm gonna come back to 12 and we're gonna get to 14. Let's just tackle this. This is basically women in ministry. Can a woman be the pastor of a church, the leader of the church? We are actually writing a document on this as, um, as pastors and elders. And so I'm gonna save some of that for when that is finished. But the topic of women in church leadership, it is important. It's important because there has been patriarchal abuse, I think, and there is a biblical order, a right biblical order. The biblical view is equality. Listen to this, this is so good. Jeremy Brooks, again, helped me with this one. The biblical view is equality with distinction, a man and a woman are equal but, equal, but they are distinct. The secular view is equality with no distinction. What has happened is there has been a loss of equality and an emphasis on distinction. So here's what I will say. I believe the Bible is clear that God's order is for men to be pastors and elders of the church. I believe it is clear also that Jesus rightly placed women way higher than they were before his time because he was showing we had done it wrong and we were out of God's order. Remember when Jesus went to the temple when he was eight days old, Anna, a prophetess, was there praying and prophesying at the time of Jesus and over Jesus. Mary Magdalene, I don't know if you know this or not, Mary Magdalene, the woman who had seven demons, was the first evangelist in the New Testament and she evangelized to men 
Uh, in John 20, verse 17, it says, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but I go to my brothers and I say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, that's the men, I have seen the Lord and that he said these things to her. Therefore, women not exercising authority over men, not teaching them, needs to be weighed carefully in light of the full biblical narrative. Otherwise, it becomes a domineering, machismo, pseudo version of Christianity. But likewise, no acknowledgement of the biblical order of God, making men and women equal but different, also creates a pseudo version of Christianity that perverts God's design and makes us, and it makes him into our image. Uh, and then all these questions about women in their clothes. What about men? Come on, fellas. Um, are the head coverings mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11 referring to physical coverings like a veil, uh, uh, hair, or something else? So here's what I'm going to do for you real quick. I'm just going to give you a fast lesson in hermeneutics. All right? Here's a fast lesson in hermeneutics. When you study your Bible, I want you to look at the context of the Bible. Context, context, context. It can't mean something to you that it didn't mean to the audience it was intended for. I want you to understand there's only one interpretation of Scripture, though there are many applications. I want you to understand we never interpret one verse by itself. Instead, we examine the whole counsel of Scripture. And finally, I want us to remember that the Bible is about God, not about me and not about you. So there's so many other things that I want to talk to you about. And so what I have done is I have made all of my notes available on the last slide. So if you want those notes at the very end, we'll put that up there. But you've sent a bajillion questions in about salvation. And so I just want to show you something quickly on the iPad here. So many of your questions were, how do I know if I'm saved? What does walking with God look like? And they were based on last week's sermon. And there's some scary verses in the Bible about, do you really know God? It is appointed once for man to die and then unto judgment. You realize every human goes through judgment Christian, non-Christian, every human goes through judgment. And so we have these incredible words in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 13.5, the Bethany read at the beginning, says this. It says, to examine ourselves and see whether we are in the faith. And then it says, to test ourselves. Then it says, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. This is what I think every one of us ought to do. We need to, one, and I'm going to use, this is what the Greek word means for examine. It means to put on trial. The Greek word for test means examine. That word is authenticity. 
the Greek word for realize. Oh, I can't spell thoroughly. It's intimidating to write in front of you. It's acquainted. There's an I in there somewhere. Thoroughly acquainted. And then again, this one means if you fail to meet the test, it's in the negative. You are in authentic. So here's the deal. All of us, every person in this room, we should put ourselves on trial. If you were standing before, before God in judgment, what would you say? What would he say about you? We need to put ourselves on trial because we're, we need to see whether we're in the faith and then we need to test ourselves for authenticity. We need to look and see, do I bear the marks of Christ? Do I have the fruit of the Spirit? Do I long for the things of God? Do I need, do I hunger to read the Bible? Do I long, are you like, please stop talking, Thomas, and will you come up and you play a song because we want to sing? Like, do you long to sing to the Lord? Do you long to talk about the Lord? Do your bones burn within you to know the Lord and share him? When you look back on your life, if enough time has passed, does it, look, does it look like a healthy stock graph? You know, a healthy stock graph, it has its ups and downs, but overall, it goes up. You're getting closer to the Lord. You're following the Lord. You're pursuing the Lord. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. I'm going to attempt this. Let me just erase this, the stock graph. It's a bird. <laughs> okay, there we go. There we go. Okay, sorry. That was stressful. I think when you think about salvation, I want you to think about it like this. When you're born again, Yes, at the end of the day, you either are a Christian or you're not, but there's a process. The Holy Spirit plants a seed, and, and then the shell begins to crack, and the beak starts to pop out, and you're no longer in that egg, but you're still a little bit in that egg, and then, then you're breaking out of that egg, and then at some point, you're not in that egg anymore, and you start to grow and mature, and you, and you become a full-blown chicken. Uh, <laughs> you. You, you become like a, a, a new creation, this whole new thing. But you, if, you're, if you've always been like, yeah, I'm just about to start cracking the shell, that's not very clear that you are a Christian. But you know when like the beak starts to pop out and the head starts to pop out because that, that stage happens really quick. And you're a different person. And so my hope for you is that you know, yeah, I was, I was like an egg one time. But boy, that beak started to pop out. That shell started to crack and the Lord was doing the work. And now look at me. I'm a chicken. 
Uh, like, you know what I mean? Like, you're like, I'm not in that egg anymore. I'm not that egg. I'm not a, I'm not a liquid chicken. That's what I call eggs. I'm not that anymore. Like, I'm like, I'm like a full-on walking around. Like, I'm a new person. You got to see some change if you're putting yourself on trial. And it's not you just be, being better behaved or moral. It's the Holy Spirit growing you making you into his image, making you desire Jesus where you want him more than everything else. There's so many verses that I could use for this, but I'll just read one that I love. It's in Philippians 3, and then, well, I'm done, and we're going to sing. It's in Philippians 3. And in Philippians 3, Paul says, indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ, righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you hear that? What does Paul long for? Not to be better and do better, but he longs to know Jesus. I think there's no greater mark of a Christian than someone who at the end of the day says, I have nothing but Jesus, therefore I have everything. Pray with me. Father, you are so good to us. So good and so kind to us that you even encourage us to examine ourselves. That we might test and see if we're in the faith. And so, Lord, would you help us to be thoroughly acquainted with with our ways and see if we have been changed by faith alone and grace alone through Christ alone not just had some good works or some good behavior or done some good things, but Lord, that you've you've cracked that shell and you've brought us to a new life in you. And Lord, if we have, may we follow what the disciples were told by Jesus. May we not rejoice in all the other things, good things, incredible things that happen, but may we rejoice most that our names are written in heaven. Move in this place, move in our hearts. In Jesus' name, Lord, amen.